Good morning. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be up here. Um, all my nervousness was in the last service, so we're, we're good. Um, thank you to all of you guys in here. I can't see you, so I have no idea where you are. But thank you for those of you who have been praying for me and encouraging me and listening to all of, all of these thoughts um, kind of come together in preparation for this morning. Um, I'm excited to bring the message. I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. And I, I love the messages that were in the worship songs this morning because as we go into talking about this idea of being healed, um, Gosh, so many of those words can just wash over us, and it's all about um, being real before God and how he's not going to let us down. And so I hope that you will, um, that'll be part of the foundation for you hearing this message today. So last week, Chris talked about traditional and modern concepts of female identity before talking about kind of um, the female identity from the perspective of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Today we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 3 to see what happens when God's original design for us starts to fall apart. Before we jump in, I just want to lay a little bit of groundwork and level set for us. First, this is a women's series. We're in the second message of a women's series, and sometimes we might come to that with a preconception that maybe this is for a certain type of woman. Well, I don't know about the women in here, but in my life I have been a daughter, a wife, a mother, a sister, a friend, a self-sufficient single woman, a married woman, a career woman, um, a stay-at-home mom, I've been a mentor, a grad student, I've struggled with infertility, I've struggled with food addiction and weight issues and self-esteem, I've walked through a natural disaster that to this day the mention of it can make me weep depending on what day it is and, and how I'm feeling that day. And these stages and experiences are just that, they're experiences. They may be a title or a role that I fulfill, but they are not my personhood. They are not the image of God in me. I live out that image through those roles, no matter what those roles have been. If I try to find my identity in them, which I certainly have been tempted to do, and I'm sure that people in here have also been tempted to do, my God-given identity, the core of that personhood, will get lost. And no matter what stage of life we're in, again, if we're not living that stage out of the Imago Day, then we'll never be living fully for what God has for us. To talk about our identity and the image of God in us, we have to dig deep through those labels, embrace our brokenness, and expose it fully to our Creator, and then root ourselves completely in Christ through a life of surrender so we don't continue to fall victim to the shame that causes us to hide our most vulnerable places. Healing can only come by surrendering every bit of our brokenness to the designer. Maybe in our past experiences with these types of gender-specific messages, we have felt uncomfortable with the language. We hear people talk about life givers and child bearers and wives and helpers. As someone with a background in education, I get really uncomfortable with that idea of helper because I think of this little kid over here that if I don't proactively give him something to do, he's gonna make my life kind of miserable. So I say, can you help me with this? And I give him a job and then he's good because he feels like he has an important role in what we're doing. And then I also think of kind of the kid who just is the, ooh, me, 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 I wanna do it, I wanna do it. They're the people pleaser and, and just wanna be always helping somebody. But those images 
And, and those conceptions that I have of what that word looks like is just that. It's a preconception, and it's based in my specific place in history and in time. And what happens is that we bring all of those preconceptions. We bring everything that we've experienced in our culture to Scripture when we read it, and we start to interpret it by that lens. So we have to be really careful whenever we come to Scripture that we need to allow space for God's Spirit to reveal the truth of God's Word in and through our own preconceptions, biases, or pain points. Finally, before we dig in, I want to jump to the end of Genesis 3, kind of get us to the end of the story and just make something very clear from the onset of this message about healing. Um, most of us are probably familiar with the Genesis 3 story, and we're going to go over parts of it today, but the serpent enters the picture, tempts Eve, Eve eats, Eve gives it to Adam, God finds them, there's a curse, we call it a curse, we're going to talk more about that later. Um, but then we pick it up in verse 22 where it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And that was the end of paradise. That was the end of creation as God had designed it. None of us get out of this alive inside, essentially. We are all broken, and it started there. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are broken. As we sit here today, male and female, if we can't embrace all the pieces of our brokenness and surrender them at the feet of our designer, we will not find healing. So last week, Chris talked about the term for woman in Genesis 2, azer konegdo. So just as a reminder, the word azer suggests a strong rescuer. It's typically used in scripture either in the context of a military relationship or in a description of God himself and his relationship as rescuer of his people. It's used twice to talk about women and the rest of the time for those other purposes. It also means to surround for the purpose of defending and protecting. In our current context, if we were to equate this azer nature to some figures that we understand and know, we might think of some of these folks up here on the screen. So where are all my Summer of Marvel folks? <laughs> Wakanda forever. Okay. Um, so we've got our Wakandan warriors. And if you haven't seen Black Panther, just that is such an amazing picture of what woman can be to a society, and I love it. Um, you've got Wonder Woman, but then all the other women up there are, are real historic figures, and all of these women in some way have been strong rescuers and have surrounded others in order to defend them. One risked her life to free men and women from slavery. Another upheld the dignity of the untouchables of Calcutta, while another has fought for democracy and human rights in her home country. One fights for the rights of young girls to be educated. Another fought the miles and hardship it took to get her children to a place of safety and yet another surrendered to the will of God in a concentration camp to bring hope to her fellow sufferers. These stories and others, some right here in this room, capture what it means for a woman to live out the image of God on earth as a strong rescuer who surrounds others for the purpose of protecting and defending. The second word used to define biblical womanhood can be translated various ways, including going before, a counterpart, 
like opposite, that idea of the, the two puzzle pieces that fit together made of the same stuff, but, but different. This wording indicates that when male and female come together, there's a fuller, stronger reflection of the image of God to the world. So although men and women are similar, we each carry a different piece of God's image that makes us stronger and more complete when we're together. I want to pause here for a moment because I want to be clear about what I'm not saying about the image of God and women. I'm not saying that the image of God in a woman is fulfilled as a wife or can only be made complete in the marriage relationship because I don't believe it for a second. I want to make clear that the male-female relationship apart from and absent of the sexual aspects reserved for marriage, remains sacred, viable, and powerful, both inside and outside of marriage when it is lived out according to God's design. In his letter to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Throughout the New Testament, the terms brother and sister are used to describe believers. Jesus treated the women he met with a dignity and sisterly love that was radical in his time. Throughout the years, there have been many men in my life for whom I hope I have fulfilled the role of Azer Konegdo. Certainly, I hope I've done it for my husband, and I hope I continue to, but, um, but I can name several men who I consider brothers, and my heart fills with this protective love that would do anything for them as an Azer Konegdo, a strong protector and a defender who will go before them and fight for them and with them because they are my brothers. I have brothers in this room today who I hope could depend on me in this way. The Azer Konegdo, the strong rescuer, protector, and defender who surrounds, goes before, and defends, is the image of God in each of us as women. It's why many of us relate to the image of a warrior, princess, or a freedom fighter, because when we see those examples, it calls out something deep within us that's been broken since the very beginning. So we're going to jump back to the text. We've got Adam and Eve in the garden. And the last verse of Genesis 2 says that Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not ashamed. And that becomes significant as we get into Genesis 3. We get to Genesis 3 and the serpent enters the picture. The serpent tempts Eve by calling into question the truth of what God had told her and Adam. And then we pick up in verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, hang on, let me catch up with the one you're reading. I'm going to start back at the beginning. (laughs) When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." And here's where it all starts to fall apart. Remember how I said that prior to this, they'd been naked and felt no shame? Being naked is the very essence of vulnerability. If we're naked with one another, there is nothing hidden. You see all of me, I see all of you, every part. And Adam and Eve were living in that world. They were naked, and they didn't didn't know that there was something they needed to worry about hiding when they were naked until their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and then they were vulnerable and they felt shame. That shame causes them to hide themselves first from each other and then from God, just like we do today. 
Brene Brown, researcher, and if you have not picked up on this, a patron saint of Area 10. We love her here. <laughs> she describes shame as a fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, I won't be worthy of connection? She goes on to say that shame feels the same for men and women, but it's organized by gender. Shame for men sounds like do not be perceived as weak. And Chris would have talked about this in his manifesto series um, back in, I think, November. So I'm going to focus on the, the women part. Shame for women sounds like this. Do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. Shame for women is a web of unobtainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be, and it's a straitjacket. It's really hard to see and read these words for some of us because we know that they have wounded our souls in some of the deepest ways. They keep us hidden because it's a straitjacket. I've sat with women who are exhausted by expectations coming from every direction. We feel the pressure of family, friends, children, jobs. Some of us feel the pressure of, of being social justice warriors and, and doing work in the community. And we let those pressures just push us down and push us down and push us down until we're just tied to ourselves and we don't know how to move forward. I know there's some women who feel trapped in these expectations and this image, but they're not prepared to embrace their brokenness yet, and so they keep up appearances, and I've done this too, we've all done this at some point. But consider this, if the image of God in us is meant to be a strong protector, someone who comes around, surrounds, in order to defend and protect, but I'm wearing a straitjacket, the only person I'm coming around and defending and protecting is myself. Now we come to the second part of the broken image. Um, Kenegda relates to the nature of the relationship between woman and man. So we're broken individually in the image God has given us, but we're also broken in relationship in the image God has given us. Um, so this idea that woman is alike but opposite a counterpart, like those two puzzle pieces that I talked about that fit together, and when they do create a whole picture of God for the world to see. We heard earlier that Eve and then Adam ate the fruit from the tree that God had instructed them not to eat. They were naked and ashamed, and they made for themselves some clothing. Then they hear God walking in the garden, and they hide. And that's where we pick up in verse 9. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. It was Eve who ate first. Both Adam and Eve were ashamed. Both of them hid from each other and then both of them hid from God. But who did God talk to first? Adam. Adam. He held Adam accountable for what happened. 
And as soon as God questions Adam, Adam deflects the blame to Eve. And I wonder if Adam was feeling this shame of being out of control and weak because he couldn't, he couldn't change the outcome of what had just happened. So he deflects his blame to Eve. And in his shame, Adam attempted to exert his own power through blaming both God and Eve for the circumstance he was in. And in so doing, he made it very evident that not only was the relationship with God broken, but also the relationship with Eve was forever changed, and that his own self-preservation was imminent. In her teaching on Genesis 3 that some of you have been going through this summer, Jen Wilkins speaks about this moment as potentially the first time a woman felt fear in the presence of a man. As we continue to read forward in scripture, as we know just the annals of history, this is not the last time that that will happen. But for now, we're in the garden and we're left with Eve, who's now alone in this experience without a partner, defenseless. Adam was, has made clear his intent to protect himself at her expense, and now she uses a similar strategy by deflecting blame onto the serpent. We get into verses 14 through 19, and in a minute you'll see verse 16 pop up, and this is just the portion that deals with the woman when God is kind of pronouncing what we think of as the curse of man. Um, but the first thing he does is he, he makes this pronouncement about the serpent, and he tells the serpent that there's going to be enmity between him and the woman, and that the, basically the woman's offspring is going to be the death and the end of the serpent. And we know the serpent to be Satan, and this is a, a messianic prophecy that there will be a Messiah that will come and that will end the reign of Satan. And so I would encourage us when we look at, at these this grouping of scriptures, um, verses 14 through 19, that pronounce this idea of what's to come, we would look at all of it as more of a prophecy than a curse, more of a here's how this is going to play out now versus a here's a new thing that's going to happen as a punishment. And I would say that's because when women and men broke, they broke according to their design. They broke according to how God made them. So it's just, here's this thing, and if it breaks, it's going to do a certain thing when it breaks. And here's how it's going to break down. Adam was given dominion. And so his shame is realized in his lack of control and his weakness. And how do we see this play out now when, when broken men, you know, are trying to regain that image that God has put, has put in them? We see displays of political and relational power, aggression, war, violence, sexual violence, material displays of power, attempting to rule both the earth and the people in it as he was created for, but in warped and painful ways. For women, as we continue to seek out the broken image of God in us, this might look like a turning in on ourselves. I've got our straight jacket on. Turning in on ourselves, fear of opening up to others, self-protection at all costs, defending ourselves from any possible threat instead of opening our arms to defend and help the defenseless from an outside threat. Manipulation for the sake of feeling valuable, strong, or connected. It's a woman's to experience the unique brokenness of womanhood, and it's, a, man to, it's ma a man's to experience the unique brokenness of manhood. But the common theme there is that we are all broken, completely. In a conversation about brokenness and healing, I would be remiss if I just didn't address the, the truth that there are folks in here who are kind of dealing with brokenness beyond what we're talking about today. And there are some deep, deep wounds 
that need deep, deep healing. And I just want to kind of say that if, if that's you um, and you really need more than what we're going to talk about for healing today and you need someone to walk with you, whether, you know, it's, it's a, somebody who's been with God before and walked through it or whether it's someone who's a professional in, and able to walk through it with you, we want to be a resource for you. So just talk to someone on staff or somebody on the prayer team, somebody who can help you get connected to, to someone who can really get you through what you're, what you're working with, what you're dealing with. So now we're going to talk about healing, healing the image of God in us. It only comes by surrendering every bit of our brokenness to our designer. And the only way we do this is to become completely vulnerable before him. We have to get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. And we're, because we're not created for our own glory. We're created for God's glory, and we are created for the good of each other and for the good of the world that God created. Overcoming the shame of complete and utter overwhelm and busting out of the straitjacket of expectations we often find ourselves in requires a great deal of surrender. The question of shame that asks, is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, I won't be worthy of connection, is answered when we're fully ourselves before God and he shows us 100% what we are, good, bad, ugly, awful. And then he assures us without a shadow of a doubt that we are his creation, marred and scarred, but nonetheless worthy of his love and affection. Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance, and in it he says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. In David's cultural context, in the Jewish culture, their sacrificial system was based on the economy. It was based on an agriculture economy. So all of, all of the sacrifices would have been animals or grain or something else that was based in an agriculture economy. But here David says something completely opposite of what his culture understood. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. In our cultural context, we may think of the sacrifices that God wants as monetary or material, because that's our economy. We might also think about trading certain behaviors for some kind of a spiritual morality. That's something we do sometimes. But David's words are just as true today, and God's preferred economy is to deal in trading broken spirits for whole people. My money and my outward behaviors, although potentially reflective of where my heart is, they mean very little to God if I'm not bringing him every piece of the brokenness that is inside of me in order for him to rectify me to the image he intended. This doesn't mean that we don't give our money and share our material possessions for the good of God's kingdom. It just means that it's not enough. God will not settle for anything short of your whole heart laid bare before him, and that's whether you're a man or a woman, male or female. He wants your whole heart laid bare. Vulnerability is defined as the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. Shame is humiliation that leads us to disconnect and to hide. When you bring your vulnerability to God, he will never shame you. He is so good, and he loves us, and he knows what is good for us. He will never shame us. Remember, he's an azer. He carries that image perfectly. 
He will wrap around us to protect us and defend us from other people and also from ourselves. He, unlike us, is not broken in his capacity to fill that role perfectly. In Isaiah 61, we see the prophet describing the promise of redemptive grace that was to come through Jesus. So we saw a a, um, messianic prophecy in Genesis, and now we're going to see one in Isaiah. And this messianic prophecy would have been fulfilled by the coming Messiah, which we believe to to be Jesus. And so when we read these words... This is, this is the story of Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. What we see here is an exchange. The key to this exchange is that in order to receive the binding up, the freedom, the release, the favor, the crown, the anointing, the garment, the recipient has to bear the pain long enough to make the trade. Jesus came to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, those who mourn and those who feel despair. He is coming and has come for those with broken and contrite hearts so that he can heal them. So what does vulnerability look like? I'm not going to give you three points on this. I'm actually just going to kind of show you um, what it's been like for me. As part of this message, I, was, I wanted to just be real about what vulnerability has looked like for me over the years with God. Um, you know, it's different in relationship because with, with God, in our spiritual growth, we can come to church, and this is, this is part of our spiritual growth, but when you're talking about vulnerability before God, typically that is not going to happen here And if it's happening here, it's probably also happening somewhere else. So for me, um, I've been nothing, if not vulnerable, before God in my lifetime since I was 14. Uh, This doesn't mean that I'm perfect, and it doesn't mean that I don't have walls that God has had to tear down. It just means that I am keenly aware of my shortcomings, and I have been through some of the pain of, of God having to tear down some of those walls. Um, but I've had many iterations of, of brokenness and of healing. And one thing I've done consistently over the years is some form of journaling. I still keep a journal today. This, this isn't it. Um, and I write when I can. I, I'm really busy now, so I don't always get enough time to write. But, um, but I do journal. And I want to read a passage that I found from January 25th, 2005. I was 24 years old. I was contemplating my path in life and just thinking about where God was going to take me and if I was going to let him take me where, where he was taking me. I would have been sitting on the floor of my one-bedroom apartment. I would have had my Bible open next to me. probably would have had some worship music playing. It was four months 
before the time I would have been engaged to Topher, and it was about seven months before Hurricane Katrina would have made these words more real in my life than I ever could have imagined at the time I wrote them. So listen as I read to you these words. Then I gaze longingly down the path less traveled. I can't see very far because there's a lot of overgrown brush and not a lot of light. I know there are thorns, rocks, a couple gorges, and maybe even a mountain or two that will have to be climbed. But I know, as I weepingly take the first steps toward the trail, that it will be a life worthy of everything God has made me to be. There will be nothing left undone. There will be battles, injuries, and many, many scars. But at the end, as I prepare to go home, I will know that I lived, that I worked to get there, and now it's time for me to rest in my eternal home. Oh God, give me the grace to take those first steps into the unknown and trust that you will not let me fall so far that your arms will not still hold me. Let me always know that I am safe in your arms. Nothing can separate me from your love. Break the chains of fear from around my heart and let me emerge as a fearless warrior, ready to do battle for my life and for your name. Amen and amen. And here's the good news, friends. As we draw near to our designer in brokenness, in submission, and in vulnerability, he trades according to his economy. He trades our brokenness for his grace and his healing and his goodness time and time again. And then not only do we find our own healing and redemption, but we find that as we all begin to draw near to our creator in that way, we can draw closer to each other with increasing vulnerability and diminishing shame because we've reconciled our brokenness to the will of our creator and we no longer need to hide from each other or blame one another. Then and only then can we finally move toward the work God has called us to as co-heirs and collaborators with him in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father God, I just want to thank you so much for this time and this space to consider what vulnerability with you looks like, what it looks like to be broken and what it looks like to be healed. I want to thank you for everyone sitting in these seats today, and I want to thank you for wherever they are, if they are fighting the vulnerability, if they don't, they don't want to show the vulnerability, or if, Lord, they feel like they are wide open and exposed. God, I pray in whatever seat they're in that, they would, that you would be there with them and that you would help them to take one step closer to healing today. I thank you for Jesus and that there is that promise in Isaiah that he will make these trades with us and he will give us his glory instead of our brokenness. Thank you for our time together this morning and thank you for Jesus who we celebrate in communion in just a moment.